This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes... And a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeeny, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie and the Podcasts podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to it. There was a time when actors who made their lives on the stage were referred to as ladies and gentlemen of the theater. And that's exactly what Jason Robarts has always been for me, a gentleman of the theater. Stage acting requires a kind of wildness, a kind of take-it-or-leave-it quality, a dangerous quality, qualities that Jason has in abundance. When I came to New York in 1962, he was already the standard by which great acting on the stage was measured. I watched him and I learned. And Jason, I share your opinion that acting is a noble profession. And the greatest challenge of all, I think, for those of us who practice it, is to make it look as if we're not doing it. So Jason, I came here tonight to tell you, nobody not does it better than you. Congratulations. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, my guest today needs no introduction because if you've been listening to this show, he kicked it off. If you've been listening to One Eight Minute Productions, he pops up regularly and usually drops science in really some of the biggest scenes of the movies. Uh, he's the, one of the only people that I kind of give carte blanche to pick whatever he wants because I love talking to him so much. He's a dear friend. He's literally the reason that Michael Mann came on One Heat Minute and um, he's just one of the funnest movie minds that exists and uh, it's not it's it's when he starts to praise old Liam Neeson work it's when he starts to praise Final Destination on the internet that I think we really see his his truest self come out and 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 reflect um, just all the power that he has inside but I love him for doing this show and coming on and kicking it off and he said all the way back down to the first episode let me come on in the first just in case this thing crashes and burns <laughs> halfway through and 2020 hasn't crashed us yet you're hearing this after the result of the US election we are recording it before he's my dear friend Bilger Beery. Bilger welcome back to all the president's minutes Ah, thank you for having me back. What's that they say uh, in Citizen Kane? I, I was here before the beginning and now I'm here after the end. <laughs> you are, you are. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love hoping that the hope and the fun of our conversation is, uh, is leading towards a hopeful, hopeful American outcome. You know, this is, the, this is the year I just spoke 
in, in terms of time and folks are going to be listening to it to Josh Rothkopf, um, really great film critic and critical voice. And he said, you know, the year 1976, we were talking about it has, has network, it has taxi driver, but it also has Rocky and all the president's men. So it is, it is that kind of like chaos right at the tipping point, And then this sort of heroic triumphant air that like things are going to get better. So hopefully that is uh, that's lending to that. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I am, uh, you know, it's two weeks to go. I'm, I'm, I'm very nervous. Um, but one never, you know, but now, you know what? All the president's men will, will still be around after the election too. So, you know, <laughs> it will still be here. We are at, we spoke 132 minutes ago in this movie. We've gone from like basically a black screen to Arguably the greatest moment in the entire film. It's the 133rd minute. If you're looking at it on your dial, it is, it is uh, two hours and 12 minutes. Um, it is the Ben Bradley monologue. Maybe one of the greatest monologues in the history of American cinema. Jason Robards winning himself an Oscar with a single monologue here. Um, you know, we went from a black screen and talking about the cooler and talking about how awesome the Pelican King brief is. But I think in this moment, like this is the moment, this is the moment of presidents. If you say all the presidents meant to even a passive viewer, they're like, Oh, that, that robots is Bradley scene that, you know, wash out 15 minutes, get your asses back in gear. That might be the greatest piece of dialogue in movie history. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Did I lose you? Oh, did I lose you? Sorry. Sorry. I thought I lost you for a second. Oh, I thought you were queuing up the video. <laughs> no, 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 no. I wasn't queuing up the minute. I was queuing you up. I was queuing you up and oh, then we're going to go to the minute. You queuing up the minute. No. Uh, um, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great uh, monologue, but also I think it's kind of the moment when, you know, the, the, the whole film has had this trajectory towards this scene, really this scene. And then the scene that comes right after it, Yes. Um, which are kind of the two, the two like aesthetic, um, themes over the course of the film right because you got you, you know the film starts with a blank page and you know words hitting a blank page um and the whole film is really about words um and the way that these guys you know use words and over the course of the film that that sort of becomes its own thing like it, it develops towards something very different uh, by the end so like right after this and i think i think we get the I think I get like five seconds of that next shot, right? With them, you know, in the office. Um, so that's one thread, uh, one aesthetic thread. And then the other one is the journey towards darkness, right? Yes. Um, and, you know, go from like the brightly lit uh, offices and, and kind of the, the daylight meetings and things like that. And then it, you know, and then it just plunges you into dark. I mean, there's all, there's plenty of darkness in the film throughout because, you know, because of the cinematography. But, um, <laughs> But it really, it's like pitch black by the end. And that scene, you know, the fact that it's happening at night and it has to happen outside, you can barely see their faces. Um, you know, what's that? What's that? What, what, it, that's the line that John McCain always used to say that I think is actually one of the great lies of history, but it's still a good line, which is, um, uh, no, the, the line was, it's always, it's always darkest before the dawn. The dawn, yes. Um, of course, John McCain's version of it was, uh, it, it's always darkest before it gets pitch pitch black um <laughs> but um 
but that's kind of you know that, that's kind of the the knife's edge on which the denouement of this film is balanced right let's now watch this minute <laughs> now that i've like said it and <laughs> no, I'll, I'll i'll, I'll you, you've said it all but we've got to watch this minute it's so wonderful um it, we'll just let the minute for, speak for itself bilger and i are going to watch it together right now you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it You know, the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. Good night. There it is. All right. So I don't get a few seconds of the. No, uh, you don't. You don't. Is this the PAL NTSC situation? Here? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but this is the blue. This is the Blu-ray that we've been using as the uh, the Blu-ray and the VOD that we've been using as the the single source of truth, if you like. Um. So so here we are. Might yeah. might might be an old PAL NTSC thing, but oh man, I just I love. There's just certain little elements. It's like. I love knowing that they're outside because you can see the tiny hairs on his head flickering in the breeze. There's just something about in that moment, they know that they're shooting outside, but they're going to shoot it outside and can't hide that, you know, almost like documentary quality of like we're outside. And so his hair's going to flutter. And so we can't mess this cut up. He has to hit this monologue. He's basically got 60 seconds to do it and we're going to do it until he gets it right. And this is, it is what it is. It's just such a, after all the revelations, after seeing him usually dispense wisdom with his feet up on a desk or with a beautiful press suit, he's there in his pajamas on his front lawn, just like dropping science to these two guys. I just can't get enough of this scene. I probably watched it 30 times before we spoke today. I just love every second of it. It's beautiful because it's also his character's trajectory is so interesting. Um, in some ways it's a conventional you know, movie character trajectory, uh, you know, he has to be convinced. But, you know, if you look at the way that he is earlier in the film, when he is in some ways their main obstacle, right? Yes. Um, and he's he's the guy who kind of is, is skeptical. And also there is this, you know, kind of vague sense that he doesn't want to touch this thing because it's going to really mess up his whole his whole situation, right? Yes. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a member of the power elite. I mean, this is, we, we see this in, in the post as well. Um, and Ben Bradley was always kind of this is very uh, fascinating figure um, perched between the world of journalism and the world of politics and power and, you know, the chummy old boy networks and things like that. I mean, he was John F. Kennedy's neighbor for years, you know? Um, but, um, you know, so so over the course of the film, you know, his body language is so interesting because the, the little things that he does to indicate where he is in his journey, 
Yes. Right. Like there's that yes. one scene. I can't remember when exactly it happened, but it's kind of later, you know, where he says something. And then as he's walking away, you know, he like, like taps his little fingers and you can sense that he's just got this, there's, there's a little run, bounce in his step. Run that, um, run that baby. And he taps. Right. Right. That's, it's, 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 when, it's kind of that moment of triumph. Yes. That initial, like, you know, false moment of triumph right before, you know, things fall apart. Um, but, um, but because Robards is such an even keeled actor, you know, he kind of has that same voice no matter what he's doing, right? I mean, that's the same voice that you hear in Once Upon a Time in the West. It's, it's <laughs> Jason Robards. I mean, for a guy who actually transformed quite a bit in movies, there is just this like Jason Robards-ness <laughs> to him that never <laughs> really goes away. No. Um, that's and, that's the difference between the Battle of C- Cable Hogue and yeah. Once Upon a Time in the West. Because with Cable Hogue, you just there's one. If there's a flaw in the movie, it's the premise that you believe that Jason Robards would eventually struggle. Like he feels like he's such a more savvy. He's not the guy who's witless. You know, he's, you know yeah. he's he's a guy who's very witty and and seems to be around. And so the latter parts of Cable Hogue are very satisfying. It's like when you see him in Once Upon a Time in in the West, you're like, yeah, this is a guy who's seen it all. He kind of has the answers. He knows it. And that's that he just wears, he's where he's dressing it up as Bradley, but those, you know, um, what's that great Indiana Jones quote? It's, 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 it's not the years, it's the mileage. Like this guy's got some mileage, man. He's, he's, he's done it. He's oracular. Is that, is that yeah. the word oracular? Like <laughs> yeah. he is, he is like, there is something like, that's the feeling you get watching all the president's men is that in some weird way, it's almost like he has all the secrets. Like he's not deep throat. He's not yeah. in bed. Like he doesn't know what's going on, but he like has all the secrets to even journalism. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, they give him, a, they give him a sheet and he can like, as he's talking with one guy, he can like mark up <laughs> copy that he's like literally reading as he's like, he can just do it. He just gets it. And yeah. you know, in my experiences as a writer at various magazines, um, newspapers and whatnot, I have come across people like this. They just like, even though they may not necessarily be the greatest editor ever or the greatest writer ever or the most successful editor ever, there's just some, something second nature about the fact that they know, they know when the story is the story. They know when it's right. They know what it, they know what it needs. It's like, it's intuitive for them yes. at this point. Um, and I don't even know if Ben Bradley in real life was like that, but, but the way the film portrays him is like that. So that, he is like, I mean, I, I hate this term because I don't play video games, but he, he becomes like the final boss, you know, yeah. like he's, kind of, um, he's like the last guy that yeah. they have to kind of not defeat. He's, he's on their side, but he's the last guy that they have to sort of unlock. But I, but, um, I, but I also think you make a great point about his role is that he's not, he's not their friend. He's not their chum, but he's an obstacle and they have to really like when you get to him, you almost have to present him like he's like giving you a riddle that you're not really sure if you're going to completely unlock or solve. You have to go there and present it. And what's so amazing is in this moment, they're waking him up in the middle of the night. They're dragging him out of his house in a robe. Like there's none of the formality or the hierarchy or all the protections and all that stuff that just sort of has the legend of Ben Bradley around at his office, the, you know, the editorial, you know, meeting room or any of that. It's here sort of as candid as he could be. And they, they present him with, the most undeniable information and he sits there and processes it. And just for the split seconds at the beginning of this minute, you actually have no idea what he's going to say to them. Like he's, whether he's going to say you're a lunatic, whether you're going to say that. And what's wonderful is the way that he's like, 
he doesn't say if this is true. He just says, you guys have got work to do. You know, we're teetering on the pressure and, and he kind of gives them the permission to go and finish this damn story and know where it's going to go. And um, I just, you know, and finally, you know, there's none of this, like, where the hell is this goddamn story anymore? It's that response, that huge pregnant pause in the movie waiting for him to process all the information they've just dumped on him. He is like a final boss because they actually unlock him and they're like, cool. We now get the advice, we get the pat on the back and we get to move on and solve the story. And, and if you think about it, one of the geniuses of this screenplay, and maybe, you know, if I, maybe one day I'll sit down and go over all the uh, various, you know, Goldman scripts and see if, see if this, this runs, this is an ongoing thing through them. But the script is almost structured as a series of riddles. Yes. Right. I mean, that's kind of a, it's the, that's the mystery element, but you know, Deep Throat knows stuff, but he's only going to give you certain things. So you have to kind of piece together. But like, there's people out there who know things. You know, it's not it's not a mystery in the sense that like nobody knows anything except like the one guy who did it. And some, you know, you have to be brilliant and piece everything together. It's everybody they meet knows what the fuck is happening. <laughs> yes, yes. Right? They're the only ones who don't know what's going on, right? And even. Even Bradley, it winds up being kind of like that, even though he doesn't know what's happening. He's the guy who finally says the future of American democracy is on the line. And one of the genius things about this movie, and maybe this is the way that, um, uh, maybe this is the way that you know Hollywood storytelling has has evolved over the years. I love the fact that the stakes, and maybe to be fair, it might also be because everybody knew this story already um, at the time. But I love the fact that the real stakes are revealed at the end of the movie. Yes. Or at yes. least stated at the end of the movie. Maybe we know the stakes, but it's not like, you know, it's not in the first 15 minutes that someone says, only, you know, truth, justice, and the American way are on the line. It's like, you wait till the very end of the movie. And he's like, oh, by the way, this is what happens. <laughs> Yeah. I, I love the balls of that though. Don't you just like, I mean, I think there's been a couple of guests who've talked about it in, in roundabout ways. And I've kind of like, I've kind of chunked their observations into this key quote, which is that like the, the, the history that bookends this movie is bigger than a film. And so the genius is how this, this, this movie injects itself into the, the sort of linear history and says, we're just going to, we're just going to be the microscope on these two guys at this moment, at this sort of avalanche moment before all of these revelations start pouring through. And actually the state of American democracy is, you know, the events that it sort of impacts um, can be stated, but I love that. And then I also love that, like after all the doubt and after just these swelling moments of paranoia and this is happening that you can punctuate it and go, this is actually what is at stake and what was at stake this whole time. And, and it's it's almost like the genius of the line "Follow the money." Follow the money is not a line that is in the book. It's a William. Nobody Gold- ever said "Follow the money," right? No, it's a William yeah. Goldmanism that has now informed the next five decades almost of investigative journalism. Or like that's the shorthand for how you uncover, you know, sort of the inherent political corruption or inherent corruption in sort of you know, criminality is that there will always be an entanglement with money. If you can follow the money and see who is actually benefiting, you know, qui bono, who benefits from all of this shit, you will find the bad guys there. It, it will, it will start to come out. And yeah, I, I just love that. He's finally like, you know, maybe, 
maybe the First Amendment, <laughs> freedom of the yeah. press and the future of the country. Yeah, it's, and this is also the thing that we've talked about, right? Which is the, um, the fact that back then, and for some years after, you, we talked about this when we talked about The Insider, you could have a movie whose climax, whose triumphant climax was journalists get the story and it's published in the paper, you know, or it's, <laughs> or it's on 60 minutes and that's yeah. it. We know, you know what happens after this roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and, but, but Matt, like the difference here is, and what I love about both those endings is that things are going to get published and ultimately we know that, you know, some good things happen, but the, the delicacy of the film to kind of just add that little bit of an asterisk on both these films that says these guys had to keep working. Nixon got reelected with everything we even know right at this moment, which should knock our socks off in the minute preceding this minute. And then Bradley's reaction, he still gets reelected. And after everything, it's like, yeah, lol finally pushes the story online. And then he just steps out into, he steps out into the flux out of that, out of that turnstile. And it's like the world's different. See how much we had to fight to just get one story up. We had to fight the entire corporation to get this done. This is, this is not good. This is not good. And I, I love both of those endings for that. I think they have a great kinship together because it's like work still needs to be done, but we don't necessarily have all the answers. We just know that work needs to still be done and the fight needs to endure. And hopefully people have got the energy to keep fighting because in this movie, we do, we see them, they're typing that chorus of beautiful typewriters, just typing Nixon being inducted and reelected. And we don't know right now as we're talking, whether it's, whether there's going to be some awful reelection happening in the United States of Donald Trump. Um, you know, hopefully maybe, maybe I'll give you a phone call at the end of, um, I'll give you a phone call and we can just tack it on uh, to the end of this episode. If we actually know the outcome uh, of the it'll election. just be me screaming. On the other <laughs> end. It'll be like, it'll be like a, Suddenly it becomes a podcast about, um, about event horizon. <laughs> Get me out of here. You're just getting in a boat. You start paddling in a dinghy to, off of Manhattan and you're like, I'm yeah, out. It's just, it's, it's just a little zoom video of me, like with my eyeballs <laughs> in my hands. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the Robards performance is also because he's so even keeled, there's something very comforting about it. Mm. Um, and there's something very, you know, even though he does present an obstacle to these guys, you know, over the course of the film, that sort of very laid back style of speaking that he has, um, you know, really speaks to kind of the way, um, the way the establishment works. Right, the the way that you know things are things are things are moving along. Things we kind of know what's going on. Yeah, you've got the story. Mm, I don't know, you know. And then by the end, when he's when he's fully on board, and before this, by the way, I mean also right before this, there's that great scene at the like the when they're going around the editor's table talking about this like colossal fuck up where um, they published the story about you know Haldeman um, being named and, and he wasn't. I mean, obviously it's a it's a it's a it's a momentary setback, but in the course of this film, it's actually, it's, 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 it's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger it's a failure, for failure, you know, huge. Like they, they screwed up. Um, and, but that little, uh, that little moment where he 
passes the, the piece of paper and here's my here's my response we stand by our story um i, I think that that's you know suddenly like this is a sense that the establishment is starting to turn yes um and in many ways bradley even though he's targeted by the nixon administration and and they don't you know they don't like him very much there is something about bradley which is when you when you finally convinced him he's on your side and, and he goes from being your primary obstacle to being your primary enabler something has turned yes. um and i think that's really important um es especially, especially the eloquence with which he backs them yeah fuck it we'll stand by the boys yeah. There is nothing, there's almost nothing better than that, that, than that. Fuck it. We'll stand by the boys. Like the scrutiny that they've been under, how many, how many people have validated what they said and, and actually then hearing where there might've been a trap doors in some of their approach, but just still knowing it foundationally, like, it's like, like you said, everyone in the city knows Holderman's involved. Maybe someone didn't mention him to the grand jury, but we all know he's involved. Like, and that's, and that's the call that he has to make at that moment is we know he's involved and we may not have the source on that just yet, but you bet your bottom dollar, we're going to get it. And then obviously the vindication is that they do get it. And he is very involved as are a number of other people, but yeah, no, I, I, there's just something about, like you said, that relaxed nature, that relatability that he, he, you know, as sophisticated as he is, it's just that Bradley, you know, he's a sophisticated, he's a power broker, but at the same time he can be like, fuck it, let's stand by the boys. Yeah, I think also there's, I mean, and this doesn't relate to this minute specifically, but to kind of what's around it. You know, I was, I was talking earlier about the way words work in the movie. I mean, words mm -hmm. on paper work in the movie. Obviously, we had that opening scene with the, with the, you know, the, the, the typing and the text and all that. But, you know, if you look at the way that um, Woodward and Bernstein work over the course of the film, you know, they go from like these like pads filled with just like random notes and it's like it's like this giant soup of stuff and sometimes it's sometimes it speaks to the fact that they don't really know what the story is they don't even know if the story is a real story um and those words on pa paper become more and more organized as the film progresses until they are communicating that scene where they're at the typewriter they stop talking and they are now communicating with each other via the typewriter. Obviously there's a reason why they're doing that. But but I think and I think that's right before uh, right after Bradley passes the note. And so like words suddenly, you know, the film comes down to words on paper are monumental. And in many ways they're more important than a word, you know, you saying something in casual conversation. Yes. Um, and and which then leads to that that final shot of them at the typewriters in the office where they have gone from being these two guys who were at odds or these two guys who were kind of working separately in, in different realms and trying to piece things together. And, and sometimes to like, right before this Bradley scene, it's like Hoffman is, or, or um, you know, um, Bernstein is like speaking for Woodward. Like Woodward <laughs> says, you know, Woodward, Woodward says we can't, we're not safe. Woodward says we have to go outside. Like, you know, right? Um, so, like, they're, they've gotten to that, like, finishing each other's sentences point. And then the next scene is they are now a well-oiled machine. They are just sitting there typing away. And this is, like, they are now doing the thing. They are focused. They're working together. They're just, like, 
whatever it is that they're typing there, that's going to undo like what's happening on that TV screen, which is where no news happens. You know, <laughs> where where nothing meaningful happens on the TV. You know, yeah, you know. That's a very seventies way of you know, <laughs> ah, the TV. I, I, I've 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 said it a few times now, but you know, I used to always think of network and all the president's men as polar opposites. Um, but now I see them as, as, as siblings, as, as, as two siblings at a table. I think of how different, you know, I am to my siblings and I'm like, but we grew up in the same house. We're under the same environment. And there's just, there's just, we're just different people. And I'm like, there's a kinship between those two movies and their approaches and their, and their philosophy that I think is, you know, there's a lot of, you know, pomp and circumstance and networks obviously being much more brazen with what it's trying to say. But I just think there's so much of a kinship between both of them um, in what matters and what's not going to matter <laughs> in a much, in a much closer way that I think the reads of the film for many years have been able to tell. And I think it's like 2020 has like crystallized them and like, nah, they're siblings for me. They're, they're sitting at the same table. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. I always think of uh, Pakula as, um, as of that TV generation of directors, but he wasn't, um, you know, I think of him in the same breath as like Frankenheimer and Sidney mm. Lumet and um, all these guys who came of, who came up through the, the world of like live television drama in the fifties and sixties. He, he wasn't, um, he absolutely yeah. wasn't. He, was, he came up through the studio system and was a producer. Um, and I don't know, I, that, that, I don't know what that says, but other than the fact that, you know, he, I mean, probably felt some kind of kinship with those folks, but, um, but it's interesting. I do think of him in that vein. So I always think of him as somebody who really kind of understood TV and the nature of journalism and the nature of, you know, the, um, the televised image versus um, words on a page done by real journalists, you know, um, done by you know his later film, like roll over. I mean, those, those all get into that kind of stuff too, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and they, there is a great kinship between those guys. Cause they all kind of like, you know, as they approach the eighties and the nineties, they're not, they're not making the movies. They're not making the movies that people necessarily like outwardly want, but they make movies that are a great curiosity and a great rewarding revisit because they're not like the money makers. They're not the blockbuster generation. They're not that kind of, they're not making Reagan era movies. These guys just don't make them. That's why some of them reemerge in the nineties and still making really fascinating kind of seventies style uh, or like seventies lens nineties movies, like the Pelican Brief, for example, where you're like, Oh, this is great. Like, this is kind of like what the world really is. It's not just this, you know, escapist popcorn thing. It's, it's something a little bit darker and a little bit different and, and very morally complex. And they, these filmmakers, I think also suffered, they suffered for a couple of reasons. One, they didn't get on board the, you know, the, 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 the blockbuster kind of fairy tale train. Um, yes which nobody would have expected them to. I mean, you know, I mean, the closest thing we get is, you know, Sidney Lumet does the whiz, <laughs> you know, which is like the craziest fucking thing ever. Um, but, um, but uh, the, um, but the other thing is that, um, you know, they, they, they suffer to a certain extent because they're not the, even though they are acclaimed filmmakers and, and, well-known names they're not the sort of i don't know how to describe this i don't want to use the word auteur because that's a loaded word and to say that they're not auteurs is weird um but like you know 
I remember, I mean, growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, Pakula's name was a name I knew. Um, but like, you know, it wasn't like you didn't see a film and say, oh, wow, hey, the new Pakula, you know, because he, <laughs> you know, he was making movies and they weren't necessarily always well liked. Sidney Lumet, the same. Um, I mean, I was younger, but like they weren't like Kubrick or, or these, these, these kind of filmmakers who, whose names have become bigger than themselves. Yes. Um, you know, and people sometimes refer to them as hacks, you know, which they absolutely were not. They were like the opposite of hacks. <laughs> the absolute um, opposite of a hack. I mean, they were, the, if they were hacks, they could have done, you know, they could have done so much stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but stuff like, was it, was it, was it Consenting Adults? Was that the movie? Uh, <laughs> you know, I like, think so. Yeah. I mean, like all these films that they did and, and really they're ripe for rediscovery. Um, I mean, we've talked about Pelican Brief, uh, and you talked about Thank You. Talked about Pelican Brief a few times on, on this podcast, <laughs> but um, but you know Pelican Brief at the time, you know, we dismissed it because oh, another Grisham movie. Of course, the other Grisham movies had been made by like you know Sidney Pollock. Yeah, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> it's not like it's not like these people were chopped liver um, making right. them. Um, but you know, we thought of them as oh, these are you know pot boilers, you know pulpy money grab movies starring you know oh, Tom Cruise, you know Julia Roberts, yes, you know these, these these movie stars, yuck, you know. And now I'm like oh god, Julia Roberts, please make more <laughs> movies, you know. It's like you know, we could, we, we could have a, a Tom Cruise courtroom drama right now oh my god and, he, and, and that's why sort of charlie wilson's war which i rewatched very recently i'm like god damn it this is great hanks julia roberts philip seymour hoffman i'm like give me some movie stars baby i'm in i'm in i finally watched mark felt and while <laughs> it's not a good movie really but i was like you know what i'll take it <laughs> i was like i'll take it like, you know what this is like this is this is like you you know you, you wanted a really good burger and then but you didn't get the good burger you got the kind of not very good burger but it's still a burger you know like I hate, like, I hey, hate hey what do I expect I wanted a burger this is absolutely a burger it is not a gourmet burger but it it yeah. hit the spot it's probably gonna make you feel a little bit sick later but I'm okay it's right two a.m. burger it's okay <laughs> you know um, no but 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 I mean look it's it's that, that film has there are fascinating things about that film. Um, it's not, you know, it's not all that well made, but, um, what but I like, like that type of film, I was like, please more. Okay. This one didn't work all that well, but like make another one. You'll get it right. Eventually. I want these. Um, I think with all those guys though, and this is very, a very peculiar observation is he seems like a guy who liked like the, like the right ingredients when he was making a movie. So where, where you've got someone like, you know, in, in our contemporary sense, everyone's talking about it in the context of Nolan. I think Nolan's a good comparison to like Kubrick because a Nolan film is a Nolan film and a Kubrick film is a Kubrick film. But film, but Pacula kind of got off on, I'm going to have some of my sort of foundational elements of my movies. I'm going to have my Willis, you know, because I have that relationship. But he liked the soup of, I'm going to get a new screenwriter for this and I'm going to, I'm going to get some big different actors and just see what they bring to it. And that's sort of like more, I don't know whether it's that more collaborative tone that seems to happen in his career. That's like people sort of diminish his voice. But I think when you go back and look at what he's able to do, his approach is what stands out more so than like, 
you know, necessarily uh, an identical visual language or something like that, or a script, you know, when you're a writer director, it's more like his approach and getting these absolutely phenomenally nuanced performances out of people and very morally complex and having this really, you know, overwhelming worldview of things that are sinister, that are simmering on the edges of the frame always. And you go back and you're like, actually, it is a kind of classical authorial voice, but it's, you know, people like a Soderbergh get away with, you know, are, are like a pacular in some, in many ways, you know, because he's a guy who mixes it up with different people when he's making the films, he's evolved his own style. So he's like the man in charge, but you know, the, the, I, I feel like they're kind of like a, a past and a sort of their contemporary sort of um, analog is like a Soderbergh for me because he's like, you inject the same great ingredients, new people come in um, and the films kind of go up and down in terms of quality. They're not all like masterpieces, but when they hit, it's so overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that makes sense. I think that part of it is also that they have, um, you know, with, with Pacula, I think that there's, you know, well, all these directors, they are defined to a certain extent by the quality of the scripts that they get. Yes. Um, and you'll see a situation like, say, you know, Rob Reiner isn't one of these guys. Rob Reiner comes later and, and he comes, you know, from a different world and, and, you know, he makes different movies. But, you know, there's an example there of, you know, he has this great run where he's just getting just the best scripts. The greatest like scripts of all time. <laughs> yeah. He's, I mean, and he's, he's, he's clearly a gifted director. It's not like he's a, he's a hack, but. You know, like he is getting the best fucking scripts oh and he God. is making the best movies out of them. I mean, you know, and, and it's just like this incredible run. It's like, it's like a Kubrickian run, right? Oh, like, it's like he just, it's every one of them hit. But then the script stopped coming and suddenly, you know, he's, to, <laughs> to use an expression that has gained uh, new dimensions of late, he's left holding his dick in his hands. You know? <laughs> um, but, but it's, but that's like exactly as you just said. So you've got, this is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, Forget North, that like then the American president. And like, they're all amazing. They're all amazing films. And then later on, like his most recent directorial effort in 2017, Shock and Awe. Again, Harrelson, James Marsden, Tommy Lee Jones, like again, a journalism movie, you know, one that I've looked at in reference to this because it's like one of the more contemporary ones. But it is like, this isn't a 2 a.m. burger. This is a 4 a.m. burger. Like it is, it is not it, like... It, it it does not have any punch whatsoever and any of that snap crackle and pop of those other films are not evident in this movie. And it's very flat and very drab and visually uninteresting. And the script is kind of rote and you're like, man, this is the guy who made this is spinal tap and none of that energy or exuberance is left. Like it's just gone. And so, you know, it, it, no, he's a great, he's a great filmmaker, but yeah, to, to, to your point, it's like the scripts were everything. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, the thing, that's the thing that distinguishes a Rob Reiner, who I have plenty of respect for, from a, a Pakula or, 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 a, or a Lumet, even. I mean, Lumet is maybe, you know, at this point, he's a step above, maybe, but, um, you know, or Arthur Penn, like, these guys really yeah. did every time, and they, they had their share of flops, but, um, and, and bad movies, but it's, you never got the sense that it was 
tired. You never got the sense that it was like, ah, you know, they just kind of gave up. They're always trying to figure out a way in. They're always trying to figure out a way to make the material sing and to make it better than it, than it is, even when it's good, even when the script is good. It's like the director's job isn't just to like shoot the script. The director's job is to, is to, get, a, is to get a great script and find a way to make it even better. Right? Yes. And, 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 I, and I, get that, I get that from Pakula. Um, you know, I get that from Lumet. I get that from, from a lot of these guys. And, um, you know, it's, it's sad because we don't see a ton of those kinds of directors anymore. I think sometimes they come about, but we also don't always know what's going on. I mean, you know, studios in some ways are more powerful in the way that they can kind of manhandle these, you know, these productions through um, the, the margins, both financial and creative are, are much more brutal these days. So these yes. filmmakers don't, don't necessarily have the freedom um, to, to try new things, you know, or if they're trying new things, they're working in the indie space and just kind of, you know, what, doing or working thing. in the streaming space where the straight to streaming, like it's less consequential, you know, they're talking about the hits and, you know, people can, you know, someone who's, um, uh, you see some of these films pop up and you're like, you would never see. And, and I've mentioned this film so many times because I saw it for the first time this year and it's affected me because it's such a, in my mind, such a great film. Sydney Lumet made a film called night falls in Manhattan in 1996 with Andy Garcia, which is a terrific film. You would never, you would never see a night falls on Manhattan ever again at the theater. Like in my mind, you just would never see a movie like that. You would see a dime a dozen of them on Netflix or some something that's going for that and then at the same token it's that weird thing like you said it's like if it's a cinematic thing the studio still have the power to flex and change it and not many people can withstand it to it to that certain level but then you get something like night falls in manhattan if it was going to go to netflix and it might never be night falls in manhattan because there's no studio interference and there's you can just make whatever you want and there seems to be no control it's like yeah make it and sometimes you get the irishman and then sometimes you get whatever that God damn, uh, uh, that movie that was released on the day of the Super Bowl. I can't even remember what the Cloverfield like paradox. Oh, God. Well, like but, that. that I think was a case where it had been made under the studio and then Netflix, and then it was uh, sold, Netflix, sold because, Netflix. because they knew it was horrible and they didn't want to have this like huge theatrical flop on their hands. Um, so they were like, ah, Netflix, you take it. <laughs> you know, um, I never saw that one. Um, uh, but, but but yeah, I mean, it's it's that's the other thing about watching a film like All the Presidents. Man, I can't remember if we talked about this last time, but um, there's a comfort food quality to this movie, which Big makes time. it so rewatchable. And it's not just the fact that it's like a story of journalism, and it's kind of that. that I mean, old fashioned isn't the word, but that sort of '70s style. For me, actually, uh, there's a comfort food quality to it because I grew up in Washington D.C. So. I just love, I love movies set in Washington, D.C., even when they're not shot in Washington. Like, <laughs> In the Line of Fire is one of my favorite movies, and I think that was shot in Philadelphia. But, like, there's enough DC-ness that I just, I'd love to watch it for that reason. Um, and, um, but there is also, I think, um, you know, there is a kind of comfort food quality to just the, the just how well made it is. Yes. And, and how you know, this ability to tell your story in a low key way that is still incredibly gripping, still honors the mystery and the tension of the story, but doesn't beat you over the head with it. 
gives you the room to sort of reflect on what you're seeing, gives the actors room to breathe, gives the actors a chance to do their thing. I mean, the, the, you know, the Oscar nominations for acting that came out of this movie, um, you know, it's, it's or like, like Jane Alexander, you know, like these characters, these actors who don't get a ton of screen time, but they get no. their moments, right? They get their scenes and they nail it. I mean, I mean, you just let's just mention a couple of them, which is Jane Alexander is the bookkeeper. She absolutely crushes it. Um, Penny Fuller, who plays Sally Aitken, is absolutely phenomenal. Robert Walden, who plays Donald Segretti, you just don't make faces like that in Hollywood anymore. Like, uh, give me a hundred Robert Walden faces um, <laughs> compared to some of the people you see. Like, um, and yeah, like even you know as much as he's not a, a, a person you want to talk to, uh, talk, talk about really in, in a contemporary context anymore. But um, even someone like uh, Stephen Collins plays his role well um, uh, as, as Hugh Sloan, slippery Hugh Sloan. Um, and, and Hal Holbrook, of course, is deep throat is outstanding. And then the main guys, Jack Warden too. Um, Ned Beatty for like 10 minutes comes in as Dardis. He's in both of the big journalism movies of that year. It's like, it's, it's he's so great. So great, and that 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 weird, um, you know, that 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 weird like resistance that he does, and then finally he turns to the, sh- the safe and like, oh my, you know, um, it, it, yeah, and they all get their moments, and you know, it's it's a director like this is able to give them their moments to kind of let the, let the camera run, let the actor do their thing, um, but still do it in a cinematic way so that you don't feel like you're watching, you know, cam theater, quote unquote. <laughs> yes. um, it's really, um, it's, it's really powerful. And, and that's why a film like this, you know, you can just watch, even though it's about incredibly dark things, it's, it's a sinister movie. Um, you can just watch it and watch it and watch it and you can just like throw it on and, you know, it's and like before, a lullaby. And, be, and before you know, it's got its hooks in you. It might feel like a lullaby and then you're like, this is so good. You just start saying the same thing out loud. It's like when you put on the very best movies and that's what was one of the appeals is like this movie lulled me into doing this project for that very reason, because it is so compulsively watchable. Like you just put it on. It's the first thing on video on demand a for all the president's men there. And I'm like, I'm indecision in the Netflix queue and there it is in the Apple iTunes click all the president's men and you just watch it and it's just there. And to kind of bring it full circle, um, Robards is, you know, his delivery and his kind of sort of, you know, low-key intensity is emblematic of the movie. Yes. Right? Like, the movie actually kind of has his cadences. You know, kind of casual, not always letting you know exactly what's happening. You can sense that something is happening under the surface. And then when it snaps and crackles and pops, it hits like it hits really hard and it comes at you in, in an unexpected way. And even the cadence of this brilliant piece of dialogue, like you don't know where it's going to go. And he's like, I bet you're pretty tired. And, and just the way that it, the whole structure of this monologue is just wonderful. It's so well, and wonderful. Pauses, and his pauses, the way he pauses at every, everything he says you think is the last thing he's saying. <laughs> yes. Right, it's like I don't have the lines in front. You know it better than I do. But the, but the way the, the the way he uses pauses is you're like okay, he's done. No, no, wait, no. And, and it's, but it's not. 
but that's like that could be a that could be a bad thing too, right? That could be kind of an annoying actory thing to do. But you get the sense that I mean, every actor is supposed to do this, and in truth, very few actors actually are able to do this. Although I will say, every single actor in all the presidents men is able to do this. You get the sense that they, at any given point, that they don't really know what they're going to say next. Yes. Yes, right? and and that like present tense. That's the uh, that's the best part of the Hoffman scene with the bookkeeper, where he feels so much like he's seeking or the best thing to say and it may not be the best thing to say like yeah. and 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 so when bradley's doing this rolling thing this is the these are the lines you know the results of the latest gallup poll half the country never heard of watergate nobody gives a shit that's and, it you think that's the end of the scene it could be the end of the scene. <laughs> but then what does he say <laughs> and he goes you guys are probably pretty tired right well you should be go on home get a nice hot bath rest up 15 minutes and get your asses back in gear. Then it's, and like- it's done, right? That's the end of the scene, right? <laughs> That's the end of the scene. Yeah, there, he couldn't have an additional thought, could he? <laughs> We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. That could be the end of the scene too. Right. But, That's uh, it. That's uh, it. Uh, Fade to black. Fade to black. Fade nothing. To nothing. But then he's like, nothing's writing on this except uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Again, another yawning gap in the thought. Not that end any of, of that. Right, end of scene. <laughs> Great way to end the scene. <laughs> and then, not that any of that matters. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. And that is actually where the scene ends. And he say, then he has the courtesy to go, good night. Like, <laughs> it's actually done. I'm saying good night and we're done. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it's actually, I mean, that's, that is a Robards thing too, like that ability to pause at just the right moments. Oh my goodness. Um, he does that in Once Upon a Time in the West too, which is great. Uh, the, that, that is another quality of this movie is real faces, real people, real pauses. Nothing feels like, you know, you know, Deep Throat says he hates inexactitudes and shallowness and every character who is saying things in this movie feels like a real person human being and feels like that they're considering what they're saying and feels like they're saying. And so that naturalism is so underrated. It's so under deeply underrated. And people, people don't do it anymore. That's the thing. It's like, it's so rare to see it even in indie movies. I mean, I, I, and I don't know what it is. I don't know. It's the magic of, you know, I mean, you know, Pacula is, you know, acclaimed as a director, but I don't know that he was doing anything like incredibly special, but he kept getting these incredible performances out of people. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is really remarkable. Um, I mean, the one guy who, who does get that is Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh my goodness. Does he, know, ever. He, he gets it. Like he's able to like get those kinds of like, okay, this person is getting their moment. And this is going to be the best fucking thing. This person has This is going to be the best fucking Jenna Malone scene you've ever seen. And she just comes yeah. in. This is going to be your favorite Martin Short performance in 25 years. You know, so, you know, and he just comes in and absolutely crushes it. Oh man, what a yeah, yeah that, that that yeah, he's he's a guy. And, who gets. and he's a student of these of these types of filmmakers, and you know, in his own way, is trying to kind of keep it going. But but the but oddly enough, the only way he can keep that going is by establishing his, himself as a capital A auteur. 
Yes. So that it's never really the project. It's that people are like, I have to work with Paul Thomas Anderson because he is like a list, you know? Yeah. Um, and, be and because he's he able to carve that because kind he of will, so. he will give me the platform. And I think that that's actually what it is. It's like you said, like that cinema is the like cinema is theater, you know, where there's just like a camera and people are sort of like, it's, it's, got, it's, you know, completely visually uninteresting, lacks all that dynamism. But I think that that's, what's so amazing about this film. And it's even, you know, even in one of the most recent episodes that's been recorded, just talking about the awareness of a cut, you know, there's a moment before Sally Aitken gets a second with Dustin Hoffman's Carl Burns scene to interrupt him about the Canuck letter, which leads to another great Bradley scene, which we've talked about at length. If you've listened to the show up to this point. Um, and if you haven't go back, but just the awareness of peculiar to just go, here's, they do this beautiful sweeping shot of Bernstein coming out of there, asking for a cigarette, getting his messages. And Sally Aitken goes, Carl, and the camera cuts to her. It cuts to her first. And then it goes back to the, the other setup. And there is just something so magnificent. It's like, it's not showy. It's already done this beautiful setup to show you the expanse of the office, but it, the edit tells you Sally is interrupting our, our flow for a reason. And just that awareness, like giving someone the platform, even that two seconds that she's in that minute as an example is great. And yeah, I just, this movie's, this movie's pretty, in, in summary, after 133 episodes of this show and almost whatever it is, a hundred something hours of talking about it, this movie continues to be very, very fucking good. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. It really is. Um, no, the, 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 the other thing I'm, you said a little while ago that, that I remember I wanted to know, you've probably discussed this, um, but uh, this whole thing about uh, Bernstein being afraid of saying the wrong thing. Yes. What I love about the dynamic between them is like Woodward is always, always knows the right thing to say. Right. Right. You know, for, yeah. for, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, Bernstein is like peppering her with questions and Woodward's like, forget it. We don't want you to do anything that would make you uncomfortable. Like he knows the, the thing to say, you know, and, and he's like, he's suave in that way. And of course he's, I don't know if he's suave because he's also one of the producers of the movie and he's being played by Robert Redford, but um, I think, like, he, I think yes to all it's yes yeah. to all. It's the character, it's Redford. It's the, it's the inquisition. It's him being a more intuitive interviewer. And you see yeah. Carl learn from him and Carl's usually the blustery one, but then there's a great one with Sally Aitken. Is he telling me, did he ask you to go to bed with you? And Bernstein like looks at Woodward like, Whoa, Whoa, what happened to Mr. Suave? That's my line. Yeah. <laughs> That's my um, line. You jerk. Uh, so great. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's watching the dynamic. That's the other thing. I mean, every time I watch the film, I'm, I'm able to focus on something else some other element of it. I mean, you enjoy the whole film and obviously you're aware of all these things, but sometimes you can just watch it and just focus on one thing. And that's the, the marvel of a movie like this is that you can rewatch it and, and see new things. And when people say you can watch a new movie and see something new and every time, they're not necessarily saying that like you weren't paying attention before. They're saying that like, there might've been some element that you're aware of, but like maybe this time it jumps forth. Yeah. And the last time I saw the film, that, that was what really jumped forth is the way their relationship changes, not just in the way they interact with each other, but in the way they interact, like their relationship, the, 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 the changes in their relationship are in some ways measured by the way they interact with other people, which is a yes. great, really hard thing to do as a screenwriter, as an actor, as a filmmaker. Like that's like, as, as our friend Michael Mann likes to say, 
extremely high degree of difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you are playing 3D chess with your own movie, saying that you are designing how to do that. And you have to have the relationship down and you have to do all those things. And also sometimes it just doesn't work. It doesn't gel. You don't catch it. You don't catch the looks. You don't know the cuts. You don't have the edits. You don't have the coverage to hit it. And that's, that's what this movie is great for. And that's the or, massive. Or, or it winds up being too subtle and you know, nobody sees your movie and it's, and it's forgotten, you know? Yes. Um, so. Well, this won't be forgotten. And this conversation <laughs> conti- will be unforgettable in the context of this show. Bill Gabiri, thank you so much for endorsing my madness uh, with another uh, minute by minute deep dive show uh, right from the outset and then uh, surviving 2020 far enough to come back 132 episodes later. And, and, and I, I will say, I, I, I really enjoyed this and I'm glad I got to come back. Um, I remember I was very honored to be the first one, but then I saw the first minute and I was like, I get, a blank piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is exactly why I had to have you back because I did the same thing happen with Maria Lewis, who's a dear friend of mine. She literally was like, you gave me a fucking, like, a black screen. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? This movie's so great and you give me this black screen? This is like, but- uh, this is like when, you, when you do your in- inevitable minute-by-minute minute podcast of Derek Jarman's Blue. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be everybody's experience. That is exclusive for the Patreon. Um, this Derek <laughs> Jarman's Blue minute-by-minute. Minute. Uh, Bill Gaman, thank you so much. Um, it's, an, uh, it's great to chat to you as always. And yeah, it's, uh, we, we are so close to the end of this project and I'm sure um, you'll be back for our next one. So uh, thank you so much for doing this again. Thank you. Bilga Ibiri. The first guest and the only guest that I could have imagined to speak in that minute. At Bilga Ibiri is where you can find him on Twitter. That's the best place. At B-I-L-G-E-E-B-I-R-I. One of the greatest minutes in this movie. A a real showstopper. And uh, one of my dearest friends to talk through it. He's an absolute legend. Folks. At ATPM Pod is where you can find the last bits of information about this show. One Blake Minute on both Twitter and Instagram. One HeatMinute.com for all of our projects, including this one. If you want to support us, there should be a, a donation link that you can hit in the bottom of this. Otherwise, you can support us on Patreon and you'll get a weekly podcast called Rum and Rant where I go through many other topics, sometimes minutes from other films that we're not covering just to chat about it. That's at Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. We'll catch you on another episode tomorrow as we are winding in to the final minutes of this show. Four episodes to go.